0: Welcome to New Books in Sociology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Patterson, and today I'm speaking with Andrea Boyles about her new book, You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. Welcome to the show, Andrea.
1: Hey there, Sarah. Thanks for having me on to discuss my book. I appreciate you inviting me.
0: Yeah, thank you for being with us. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how this book fits in with your scholarship?
1: So for starters, I'd like to also extend or at least pay homage or respect to the folks on the ground. My book captures their everyday experiences, and so I certainly want to, as best as I can, center them throughout the interview. And so just to tell you a little bit about myself, personally, I am a born and raised native of St. Louis, Missouri. I am also a feminist race scholar, sociologist, critical criminologist, and ethnographer, And my book, You Can't Stop the Revolution, reflects each of those things personally and professionally, whether it's from biographical reflexive accounts of my childhood experiences that I have had personally with poverty, facing all forms of disorder, uh, meaning physical and social, neighborhood ties, this whole notion of doing what you got to do to survive and thrive in environments, really, Sarah, one after the other that are often structured institutionally to my and the detriment of others. And so how my book ties into um, who I am personally and professionally, yes, it is my work in general relating to um, race, Racialized experiences, living stratified, and I'd go further, defined, living a life defined in every day by Blackness and what that means in terms of racial consciousness, self-love and empowerment. You Can't Stop the Revolution speaks to all those things and more. It's one of countless, um, because there's been many depictions of poor Black life, but it's one of countless opportunities for contextualizing poor Black folks' everyday experiences in this region, meaning the St. Louis region especially, and also other places broadly beyond simple headlines and so forth. Um, So again, this is not the first publication, obviously, to do so, however, my book speaks Again, disproportionately to poor black places. And it is important to understand and change the game, particularly in how I've written and thought about things from start to finish, changing the game for how we articulate things, especially if we want to fully understand 21st century black uprising. So the Ferguson uprising, of course, did not occur in a vacuum. So, Sarah, I am intimately, or at least through my project, intimately working. I've worked to understand and provide, um, based on previous projects and personal experience and otherwise, to delve into racial spatial politics of this location. Again, speaking to the St. Louis region, Ferguson is um, a suburb in in this metropolitan area, but I've worked and i have conducted projects again delving into racial spatial politics and so by virtue of personal experiences and overlapping areas of academic expertise and in, empir- in an empirical lens for accounting for all these things across disciplines i again have those issues and more emerge and are reflective in this project And more specifically in the book, You Can't Stop the Revolution, even as a black feminist, you can't stop the revolution captures. Black women, I've worked to capture Black women confronting and resisting disorder, um, social and physical disorder every day in and out of protest space. Um, Footage of police clashes, tear gas, and more specifically, rubber bullets and all those things are always captivating. They're provocative, but at the end of the day, they're not the end-all be-all and should not be to our understanding of this uprising. The Ferguson uprising actually is a historical marker. Activists here Which is important to me and important to note, activists here in the St. Louis region pride themselves in 400 days of sustained direct action. And so if memory serves me correctly, that's even longer than a Montgomery bus boycott. Um, And it's important to note because how we think about or at least um, who I am personally and as a scholar, all those things reflect that my experiences there on the ground are reflected yet again in this book. I try to provide a full empirical story, essentially, that somehow touches everybody in the Black community, um, including Black women, again, from a feminist perspective and gendered expert centered focus on women, Black women centered networks and the fact that Black women have always led. Um, So this is not something new. Um, to Ferguson or thereafter, shortly thereafter, Black women have always led and been engaged in activism, even if it was within their homes and neighborhoods. And so I account for other mothers and community other mothers. And yes, they have done this beyond that scope as organizers and lead and having lead roles politically and otherwise here in this uprising. And lastly, I will say that I um, would also like people to understand um, that Black women feminist academics and researchers are capable of providing rich empirical work from the inside of some of the most tumultuous incidents in our society. I think that's important to note also for Black women or um, female researchers coming behind me, alongside of me. uh, We come and do this work in many respects on the heels of those historical other mothers and community other mothers. And so um, oftentimes, This is happening invisibly. I quietly, I can say personally, I quietly and purposely worked as inconspicuously and respectfully as I could to account accurately for three years in the St. Louis region. But the half hasn't been told and what it took to advance the plight and platform of folks, everyday experiences, black folks, poor black folks, especially. And so, um, again, it's important to note that folks, black women have led in many respects, continue to do that. They did that here in the Ferguson uprising and continue that effort every day within this region, long after the cameras have left. And likewise, has it been Black feminist work also at play, even in capturing and documenting. And so I especially would like folks to understand that as they read the material.
0: So some of our listeners are going to be students, and you touched on some of your methodology, but I was hoping you could tell us more about it, so the interviews as well as the ethnography and on the groundwork that you did. And then also you you sort of talked about your positionality, and I think that came up a lot in your book in the way it's structured, which I really appreciated the structure. So I was hoping you could talk more about those issues. I will tell you this.
1: In terms of students' understanding, And methodology and reflexivity about my position as a black female, a black, this black woman sociologist conducting sociological and um, criminological work. Had a wonderful professor for qualitative methods, which is not always the course in of itself, is not always a requirement. And that can make for a very different conversation. But I'll confess my bias and say that she was, in fact, the best, even. But once on the ground, despite how awesome and incredible my qualitative professor was and all that I learned in her course, Um, Once on the ground, the rules of engagement did not always match parts of my training. And so sure, the in-depth interviews, I'll be more specific, like, for example, the in-depth interviews and focus groups were fine, meaning the processes for that held up generally and worked out, you know, as trained, planned and expected or however we might want to think about it. But my work extended beyond in-depth interviews and focus groups. And so as an ethnographer, It's the participant observation portion of things that I often had to negotiate and navigate in real time. That meant that I didn't have a textbook to reference or I couldn't make phone calls and things like that to get some kind of, you know, direction or input. Things were happening quickly, you know, um, and things were very fluid. And so uh, the other piece to understand is that in real time. And on the ground, I had no authority and no one cared about my ivory tower position or academic credentials. Folks were working in the trenches. People, when I say working in the trenches, like people were working as if life and it did depended on it. And so nothing in that sense could prepare me for the weight of the people. That I encountered. And then, even if I think about how I was situated, that positioned me to really, from my personal, uh, meaning reflexive position, me as this Black woman, this native and resident researcher in the St. Louis region, um, that situated me in, you know, um, between what I would refer to as social extremes. It, you know, it put me. In sort of this space that I wasn't prepared for. I guess in, in many respects, if I could provide examples, I would say I spent quite a bit of time in some instances, particularly on the ground through participant observation, like trying to wrap my head around the fact that I'm standing, I'm I'm standing in the face of tanks police militarization. Like, what does that feel like? What does that mean? I'm running from tear gas and rubber bullets trying to get out, you know, out of the line of those kinds of things. No textbook or lecture could prepare me mentally or otherwise for dogs being brought out on me and the people. And so the vulnerability or danger of it all is what I, you know, I want students to understand. So even with the best of instruction, I was not prepared for that. I don't really know that anybody could in that sense. Um, So at best, my takeaway and what I extend to students, especially and other researchers that may be engaging similarly, it, it is probable and I understand and accept I'm not the only person to conduct work in, you know, in these vulnerable places or spaces of time. However, for me, one of the things beyond instruction and institutional training or checks that I often deferred to was to remain ethical to as best as I could stay ethical. So I would say ethics ruled my decisions and that could mean different things to different people. But I think generally speaking, it was me trying to um, navigate this space in ways that would where I could stay, um, steer clear of things that might compromise safety as best as I could for myself or others on the ground, or even away from protests or um, direct action in neighborhoods. It was trying to make sure that I navigated safety in a particular way. But again, that too is still very subjective, right? Because by virtue of being out there, that didn't really prove safe in and of itself when matched up against state violence or the propensity for it, and increases in it when it did happen. So even then, I had to navigate participant observation, that part of the research, at least with ethics in the forefront of my mind, and and using that and deferring to that as somewhat of a guide. Um, The other things that I would say is that I also had to, you know, sort of check my pearls, so to speak, at the door. It was important to me to not compromise or give space at least to disrespecting or creating additional discomfort for not only myself, but protesters, activists, and otherwise, you know, these organizers who were engaging and leading this effort. Something else to kind of think about in terms of dirty fingernails and the idea, checking my pearls at the door. I tell folks all the time that You know, reflexively, even though and and when we account for or at least I account for insider status, the fact that I am black, born and raised in St. Louis with countless relationships and inroads in lots of places throughout the region did not automatically grant me access to the movement. That's really important for me, you know, I feel like for me to note. All of those things, you know, and and the number of them that positioned me with insider status still did not grant me automatic access. It helped, certainly to some degree, but truly and really access, you know, that was earned That had to be earned. So then someone might say, Well, what do you mean that, you know, it helped, but access in and of itself had to be earned? In other words, it meant that I needed to respect participants, whether they were engaging. You know, I had to be really respectful of space and respectful of the work that people were doing and not take my privilege place for granted or, you know, or as an out for assuming that somehow. I was automatically granted in and had endless or, you know, had the wherewithal to kind of navigate those places as an as authority. I had to really be cognizant of that. And because it, folks were navigating or certainly existing in those spaces as if they were resisting in ways that life depended on it. And so alliance meant that I had a willingness I had to prove myself and earn alliance to some degree, and at least show a willingness and respect for the work that they did, which meant dirty fingernails, as some of the activists referred to it, one um, activist in particular. And so that was to mean to not get pigeonholed for me and others, to not get pigeonholed, to find spaces to kind of show oneself as respectful and cognizant of the sacrifices that they were making and not show up or sort of engage as what they might consider or perceive to be, quote unquote, a typical academic, which means folks who want access and want stories, but are not necessarily willing to roll up their sleeves and provide sweat equity. And so those things stood out, like how, when you say you're here, what are you here for? Is it about, you know, just kind of catching, you know, is it about the moment? Or is it about the movement and like what it, What do you contribute or position yourself to do? And when I say contribute, that doesn't necessarily mean in the same sense as organizers and activists by activity by activity or, you know, in that sense. But dirty fingernails speaks to sweat equity. Like you, there there was a need to show that you're willing on some level to be in the, you know, position yourself in the trenches physically even Um, In some respects. And so I'll, I'll confess, I am as much of a true academic as I am an engaged community member near and far. But it mattered to me, Sarah, to know their thought. And so I had those conversations, I guess, is what I'm really trying to say. I know this. I can talk about what they meant or at least the couple that I spoke with extensively about this issue. Like I truly understand where they were coming from by dirty fingernails. This idea of, um, and they talk about that too. I spelled that out in a book. Don't tell me anything or suggest or propose anything to me that you yourself are not, you know, may not be willing to do. Like I don't want to be lectured to, and this is real work. So it's community building. The fact that I asked that question, is another way in which you, you know, I was able to navigate or see at least extend myself as, you know, a, um, a legitimate participant in the process, the process for advancing that platform of Black folks, Black folks, especially those poor in this disadvantaged space and operating in resistance. And so community building and asking or at least having the willingness, being thoughtful and cognizant enough to gauge folks thoughts on everything uprising. Right. And beyond Um, that also meant taking assessment which is what I've been speaking to, taking assessment of their thoughts of me and others like me, other academics, uh, you know, just academics generally, not any one person, but just academics generally, researchers, you know, um, broadly. So students and otherwise should be really conscious of this. Like we question folks about all sorts of things, but one of the things we rarely, we rarely ask about is what their thoughts are about research and engaging across the aisle, oftentimes with academics. And so I stood down and deferred. In other words, I was willing to be humble and present myself in, in humility rather than intruding in their resistance space. These were their offices. And so while I exist in typical carpeted, cushioned, you know, warm or air conditioned space, In front of a laptop or in front of a desktop in academia, the truth of the matter is their office organizing and so forth oftentimes is, you know, their workspace is occurring in the streets. And I needed to be respectful of that. I respected to not assume they owed me and had no thoughts about me. Folks were judging their work, the work of mobilizing a collective action. It seemed only fair that I should extend opportunity to do the same when it came to me. Um, and so this, too, is about furthering the work that we do and the idea of ethics and being, yeah, circling back to ethics. Right. And the idea of making sure that I at least was cognizant and conscious of those participating beyond projects and lines on my CV.
0: And I really appreciated it in the book that you're sort of very upfront about those conversations you had as things progressed with the movement, which I thought was really helpful as someone who hasn't studied protests and didn't sort of understand that on-the-ground work. But you also, in your book, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, focus on the concept of disorder or like the systematic model of social organizations, uh, which includes social disorder, physical disorder, and community. So I was hoping you could explain that framework. So for years, I had conducted
1: research on police brutality in the St. Louis region well before Brown's death. And the Ferguson uprising was more than that. I had also discussed DOJ intervention in the St. Louis region years before Brown's death. Again, this uprising was so much more than that. I had also discussed issues um, stemming from or related to or directly and indirectly poverty, segregation, and racialized assumptions and experiences for Black folks, especially um, the poor across places, white locations particularly, extending those, that dialogue at least into the suburbs. But again, the Ferguson uprising was more than that. More importantly, I heard the earlier calls to action. And I emphasize that because that is what is least captured. The initial calls to action and what those directives were. I was present. I heard them. And that fueled part of the framing for this project. And so my awareness of those many things through participant observation, interviews, the in-depth interviews, and and focus groups included throughout the region because of direct action and so forth. That didn't just happen in Ferguson. It was happening throughout the St. Louis region. I found that my project could not, along with the protesters, Um, inclinations and things that they communicated they they, in other words they often talked about their engagement when I got down there again tape was still in place and so having stayed the course for years the black folks on the ground were adamant Sarah they were adamant early on that this move to thwart state violence and otherwise could not and would not be business as usual And so given all the different ways through which I was capturing this information, found that my project couldn't be business as usual either. In short, there were things emerging that flipped everything on its head somewhat. And I had to decide to account for tradition, yeah, on some level, but to also be very, very willing to the degree to follow the data and break from it. The the whole mode of operating for folks resisting in every day, in their every day, whether on the ground or away from it, was about confronting the status quo. So that's what emerged. And I was positioned to do that alongside of them. So calls of action Included neighborhood violence. Those earlier calls of action talked about neighborhood violence. It wasn't. In other words, it wasn't just about policing, which is what ultimately captured all of the attention. I found folks organizing. I found folks facing a wealth of issues that didn't solely rest with routine of these routine conversations about policing. And so it was in that space that disorder emerged. Right. And I was challenged by the emerging things and how to capture it and have conversations about it. I had to rethink and think literally about how often theory after theory often speaks to black folks inability to organize. Right. But I'm witnessing quite the contrary and learning differently through everyday individuals, everyday or at least individual uh, what I refer to and talk about in the book individual integration and formal participation in and out of protest. When we have conversations about community, community developed, developed in a way that we may not typically articulate. And so it was about protest community, right? Um, And there were so many things taking place that, again, challenged traditional ways of thinking about these things sociologically and criminologically. And so in order to hold true to the work, And when I say work, not necessarily just the work of the people who I was documenting and capturing, but the whole truth even to academic work, sociological and otherwise. I had to be willing to present it to somewhat um, flip everything on its head in the same respect in which the themes emerge and to shock in some to some degree our academic sensibilities and others to process And as one protester said it best, literally rethink all of it. And so theorists like Ross and Jang and Mary Patillo provided space and room for me to be able to navigate from traditional explanations about Black folks, all the reasons and all the dynamics why Black folks don't come together, why they don't organize, and all the headlines that talk about Black folks only being interested in Black life. When one or two or many have been lost historically at the hands of police, I had to be able to sort of have that conversation because that's what emerged time and time again in a way that wasn't being discussed um, well beyond the confounds of pol- black citizen police conflict. Black folks were organizing and engaging. Yes. in their every day, even in terms of dealing with um, neighborhood violence. And so community developed, not just community in the sense that we typically think about it when we're accounting for neighborhood or accounting for, you know, the broader community, um, you know, from block to neighborhood. So that positioned me to sort of engage in micro or provide micro and macro analysis and to be able to challenge people to think about community, these social networks, or at least these informal social ties that were not only developing and emerging, and I was finding undiscovered, or at least, let me say, not always discussed and considered in the neighborhood, but also within protest space in and of itself. These um, social ties that people were relying on to actually protect one
0: another in their every day, not just because
1: there had been this Ferguson
0: uprising. I was hoping you could talk to us about what you call or refer to day one in the book. So yeah, I got down to uh,
1: what we refer to and I talk about as ground zero. So that was if I had to give a visual, roughly two blocks or so, a block and a half roughly from where Brown was killed. And the crime tape was still up. It, it was still in place. Um, and I talk about in the book how we, you know, there was a time, um, it, maybe I don't mention this, but this was still during a time where Brown mo- Brown's mom was giving like the earlier of what would become many interviews. And so folks were extremely alarmed. Black folks were starting to gather. Press was starting to gather. There were a few um, elected officials, Black elected officials particularly, that were starting to gather. And it was just very, it, w- it was fluid. And it was, you know, it, it was very uh, somewhat of a shock to folks' sensibilities, Black folks especially, because people were trying to figure out what happened. And people were trying, you know, were upset and trying to figure that out and also navigate the appearance of his mother and family members. And, you know, if folks wanted answers, we were waiting, you know, until they cleared the scene. And it seemed to be that he was still on the ground. That was adding to the frustration, you know, despite the fact that many folks had emerged at the scene and weren't blood relatives, it was still very disheartening because those were, the, all of that stuff became messaging for the broader black community. So it was pretty rough. And so this is still all like happening and unfolding without the world being tuned in. That's this I can tell. I I was probably the first researcher on the ground capturing. There were folks coming. But here's what I have not seen and have not heard was folks be able to account for those initial conversations in real time and how folks were, you know, trying to make sense, even. In the face of police militarization, trying to wrap their heads around. I talked about earlier, at least mentioned to some degree, that there were that night, by nightfall, by the time the crime tape came down from the outer, what I refer to as the outer and inside parameters, and we were able to go back to the scene of Brown's death. There seemed to be just a number of events that were occurring. It was just evolving in a way that was for all purposes intended, it, it was pretty frightening. and It was very, you know, um, fluid to the point where, and I talk about that in the book as well, where I thought, you know, somebody could sneeze wrong. Like it was just that fluid. Like somebody could make the wrong move and it'd be leverage or reason to sort of argue that Black folks gathering, you know, that these Black folks are being threatening. And I, I just thought like, it's too much. And this could, really go real wrong, real fast. And and so even in saying that I talk about Ferguson, which is the other thing that separates me and my work from most, I define the word Ferguson and post-Ferguson in very different ways compared to most. And that is because I was on the ground so very early on in those first few immediately following, you know, within hours at least of Brown's death. So how I account for time is going to be, and, and, as a, as, and as a researcher, how I speak to that is going to be in some respect very, very different from everybody else, is going to, in many respects, be somewhat different from how it is discussed and articulated in media, because Ferguson didn't occur in one day. and so when I say Ferguson occurring, it didn't occur, um, Ferguson uprising, that's what I'm speaking to. It didn't occur in one day. So when I talk about Ferguson, I'm speaking to all the stuff that worked to fuel that led into Brown's killing. All those clashes and what became visible, but had for so many years in the region and beyond it been invisible to most folks. That's Ferguson to me. All the stuff that transpired that fueled and led up to Brown's um, vulnerability and the fact that his life was taken. When I account for post-Ferguson, I'm accounting for a shift, a shift in how we think about and articulate events after Brown's death at the point of him being removed from the ground. His final resting place, and what that image those visuals of him having laid there on the ground for all those many hours, like what that met that that messaging meant, what that triggered for all the people that were near and far, and what that triggered was the uprising, so ferguson post ferguson. For me, when I speak to it, is everything that happened following his removal from the ground, that shift, the sociological shift, how we analyze, how we think about things, again, could no longer be business as usual. And it did not emerge as such because from the start of those initial calls to action, even in that, even in the, the calls that I account for, that was not even business as usual. It did not coincide with stereotypical and oftentimes publicly broadcasted ideas about what Black folks care about versus not and how folks collectively come together to address Black life in general. So that, in a nutshell, sort of gives some insight into Ferguson. It was uh, at least um, that location on day one the the emotions and you know mental state of folks standing there his mom you know I watched his mom go there was still visible blood splatter I watched his mom go over that with rose petals like that sits with you very very different even as an analytical person in that space I am human and as a participant observation seeing you know that unfiltered pain of um, his mom and family members, and then standing there and kind of thinking about that, like you know, and having to sort of make sense of that. All the while, things are rapidly unfolding. Still, despite despite that happening, day one, it, it was it was pretty rough to say the least.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought. I mean, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but when we as researchers think of like neighborhoods or census blocks, I mean, in your book what I found really powerful was like, we're walking with you, right? We're walking with you as you're experiencing these. And I find that really powerful. And you situate Ferguson in terms of the regional issues that were coming up. And you say in your book that Ferguson is St. Louis and you talk about um, sort of what you've been referencing in terms of the Ferguson effect. Um, So I was hoping you could talk more about Ferguson as a place. I also call attention to Ferguson
1: as you know St. Louis because it is this. It was this an invisible place to most folks. It wasn't invisible to us that are you know that live, um, born and raised in St. Louis that are you know frequent the St. Louis metropolitan area. Um, so far, folks talked about it sort of as a separate place, and so it was important to kind of reel that in and emphasize. No, Ferguson is a part of the St. Louis region. It is one municipality out of almost um, 90. Because in order to understand how things played out, the dynamics, the demographics and otherwise in Ferguson, to have any sense of understanding on, um, you know, how those things emerged and so forth, that meant also in More importantly, understanding the social or um, at least the racial spatial politics of the region. Ferguson is a suburb in St. Louis. It is a suburban municipality in St. Louis. More specifically, St. Louis is divided. So I talk about the divorce between what ultimately became St. Louis City and then St. Louis County. St. Louis City being Urban space, St. Louis County being suburban space. Ferguson is located in St. Louis County. It is, again, one of countless municipalities, which in and of itself creates and presents a wealth of opportunities to really and truly um, for folks to really understand how it came to be arranged in a particular way that made it, or at least, you know, which is very different from what most people thought. And assume, especially folks who never had never heard of it, it sort of gives space to better understand or become educated why it shouldn't have been the least expected place for a Black uprising, if that makes sense. And so, um, so this is about providing space to understand why Ferguson was actually right for it not least likely to have it or be the place for it across the nation. So it's in St. Louis County. This is one municipality, Ferguson, one municipality of almost 90. St. Louis County also has almost 50-plus police agencies, roughly 50-plus police agencies that police across the almost 90 municipalities. In addition to that, it has an overarching police agency. Um, St. Louis County Police. So you've got all this overlapping and sort of intersecting of municipalities in St. Louis suburbia in terms of um, these small governments that are competing against one another for revenue and otherwise, all in addition to this larger government entity, oftentimes that on some level is primarily responsible or often responsible Um, in terms of policing for unincorporated suburban space, but like what we witnessed in Ferguson becomes one of countless agencies that is giving or providing direction and taking reins on the policing of Black spaces or policing of predominantly white spaces where Black folks are migrating in and out of it or at least becoming somewhat of a... um, enclave within it. And so that's what I talk about in the previous book, Race, Place and Suburban Policing. So when we talk about this Ferguson effect, um, because it, I flesh out those locations, St. Louis and the politics and such more in the book. But when we talk about the Ferguson effect, that was especially disparaging to black folks and really um, disparaging to broader analysis and conversations in some respect. Here's why: because what it became is leverage, or at least it advanced this argument that as crime seemingly increased, or let me say homicides at least um, in the region, what it sort of suggested is that you know there the homicide rate is as it is because. Or things are happening in a community, crime and such, because people, police are going to feel or not going to want to engage. Police are not like, so so what it did was it kind of gave an out to differential policing. Policing are not going to want to engage. They're not going to be as prompt or as involved in terms of addressing or investigating, you know, um, these various you know, um, criminal elements. And so there is this backlash that seems to be happening that whether that ultimately became direct and indirect, blaming for the folks who are actually subject to it, the folks whose lives are hanging in a balance. And so what I argue is that anything that occurred, good, bad, or indifferent, particularly with regards to crime, can't be solely Discussed or erased or eliminated or passed off due to this, uh, the, the Ferguson uprising, not at least in that sense, because we have an entire history where law enforcement, re, uh, regardless of Ferguson uprising, have not been pro, um, have not shown up at least for calls, have not been, or let me say, have been very racialized in how they dealt with. Black folks, Black neighborhoods in the community, um, largely. That didn't begin with Ferguson. We can trace that, and I do. In the previous work, and you can't stop revolution, the revolution, I trace police response to Black folks, police interaction with Black folks, all the way back to slave patrol. So to sort of suggest, like, this is a new kind of disengagement because of Ferguson uprising, it, it, it doesn't hold true, it's not true. And so um, I think it was the idea was to send folks down this rabbit hole. It sort of created again; it became sort of an out or a space, at least, to blame the victim. And the truth of the matter is, it didn't hold up in research. My project, one after the other, have certainly revealed differently.
0: The activists were their actions were both spontaneous and deliberate, but oftentimes their peaceful protesting was seen as, um, you know, it was viewed as being an enemy of the state.
1: So I guess the deliberate, the spontaneous, um, when I say direct actions, I want to also be clear about that. When I talk about direct actions, that is not just limited to protesting on the streets. There were, resistance encompassed broader number of things, a broad number of actions that did not, again, just take place um, in terms of protests in, in the street, in that sense. And that did not just happen in Ferguson. It was throughout the St. Louis region. And then through diffusion, of course, ultimately became a national, international movement. One on top, one after the other, one on top of the other, in that sense. Um, spontaneous, because sometimes... Folks would, um, and I don't want to go too far into that, those details, but the spontaneous part is because of fluidity. You know, situations were so fluid and it was the there was a constant navigating for the sake of protecting and serving one another among black citizens, Um, be it in protest in protest space or out of it. Black folks were constantly trying to figure out what to do, how to do, and in what ways to do it that would be resistance to the status quo and state-sanctioned and state violence, whether it's neighborhood violence or, or, or police violence, and how to protect and serve one another all the while through collective action. The fact that the very appearance of Black folks, Black folks doing nothing, has proven threatening and space to fear um, and space for, again, racialized police experiences where violence becomes an escalated go-to versus a de-escalate, you know, a de-escalated encounter or, you know, those kinds. That in and of itself, just the very appearance of uh, and the idea of blackness. I have that conversation as well. So it is enough For someone to be identified or at least treated as um, based on history as enemies of the state. So when we talk about peaceful protesting, this is why in the book I call attention to the responses and reactions and thoughts, you know, the verbiage of protesters, because it becomes an oxymoron in some degree to sort of articulate. Folks on the ground as peaceful versus not um, because that becomes subjective just by virtue of being black. And being in space that the state controls and being outside of being in that space in a particular way that challenge that, be, that proves challenging to the status quo is enough for one to be identified, um, you know, is, is not peaceful more specifically if some you know if, if we wanted to talk about particular incidents or things that occurred oftentimes at least from where i sat through participant observation folks through things i know there were times where we, we folks could read and hear about water bottles and things like that being thrown or bricks and things like that being thrown that kind of stuff and so oftentimes people you know some folks critics particularly um, would capitalize on that and that would become like the dialogue and the conversation but i talk about in a book you know how there were folks that were not readily identifiable that oftentimes were kind of engaged in protest space and this notion of plants and you know people who were provoking sometimes doing things for the sake of provoking a clash that did not always mean or always um happen as a strategy For protesters, and yet more often than not, did media or folks account for that? And so um, this idea of, again, being peaceful, like, so what did that mean? And what does that mean when you've got folks standing there facing tear gas and rubber bullets, people who are law-abiding citizens, but came to, you know, ground zero or otherwise throughout the region for the sake of expressing discontent? And so, you know, so so it's a bit compromising. Folks called attention to that. This constant show of force—that's what militarization looked like and became this constant show of force, excessive force, the constant reminder. So, how do you say that and speak to that? And uh, and one other thing, I would like to throw out just to um, provide context. I tell students and other folks generally. You can't have a gathering of people anywhere where you, in large numbers, where someone doesn't do something that may not be in concert with the behavior of the group, or that may not be, you know, um, necessarily, I, I guess for all in, you know, may not necessarily be appropriate. That means this is why you have things occurring unseemly at championship college or university championships where folks, you know, get so excited or passionate about something or just, you know, start to flip cars. We see cars burn, trash cans, on all kinds of stuff. I remember sitting in a, an, NFL, an NFL game and folks had drank too much and were about, you know, there was about to be a fight and all kinds of stuff. You know, you see all kinds of things happen where there are numbers, sizable populations of people. So that so somehow those kinds of things don't garner the same amount of attention. But there is, again, this certain amount of provocativeness, this idea of blackness, this idea that black folks have captured space for the sake of political and otherwise advancing black position that becomes automatic or at least gives way to these ideas, these very um, disparaging characterizations as Folks being thought of and treated as enemies of the state and as disorderly, automatically disorderly, everybody present, everyone involved by virtue of association or being criminal. Um, This idea of automatic criminality being assigned this looting, let's immediately zero in to the looting um, and think about that again as space for criminalizing, which then becomes yet another rabbit hole by which to not think about all of the historical circumstances that fed into the moment.
0: Thank you. I think one of the really powerful things about qualitative work is that we can get to know particular people. And so I was hoping you could talk to us about Tevin, Kareem, and Ted. Because I conducted in-depth interviews,
1: there were opportunities where folks had really extensive or at least provided extensive information about their life stories. And these three individuals uh, were certainly, they weren't the only ones, but they were certainly three of few who did that. So much to the point where I could provide a longitudinal sort of analysis for, you know, what their everyday looked like, because again, these things are not occurring in a vacuum. It's important to be able to sort of connect the dots. And I talk about it and at least frame it in a sense of Black Lives Matter before death. And also to the degree that, you know, one of the things I communicate throughout the book is this notion that black people live there every day, especially poor black folks. Live there every day in many respects, damned if you do, damned if you don't. And you can literally see that. And I was able to see these emerging themes and talk about it from Tevin to Kareem to Ted, these dynamics where they were virtually situated um, in many respects, the start of their lives. They were sort of situated in ways, no fault of their own, that sort of set them on these trajectories that right away sacrificed the quality of life for them. And so it's important to know that these things are connected in ways that have long lasting effects on individuals Long-lasting effects on entire neighborhoods, long-lasting effects on the Black community in general, whether we are talking about being unhoused, the idea of not even having a place to call home or, you know, or at least a place where how do people go for years living in spaces with no indoor running water? How then, what do we think the long-term implications are for children who are faced with having to maybe raise themselves because they don't have a, a village. And when I say a village, not necessarily always meaning that within a Black community, but even in terms of the role of the school system. What about social services? Do Is there just an intervening of social services in ways that after folks have been, you know, exposed to the worst of everything Because many respects at that point, then it's about policing, or at least that's the feel that folks get. You're coming on the heels of everything, but there was no proactive engagement, meaning like how do we think about our society, the broader society, before people get or find themselves in the worst of circumstances, particularly for communities that have been um, institutionally abandoned. The consequences of that are far-reaching, and they're far-reaching not in adults, because oftentimes those are the people we speak to, or at least the folks that get zeroed in on, particularly when it comes to crime, when it comes to police clashes and things. But What does that look like from the start, right? We hear conversations and things and have these discussions about preschool, you know, Head Start programs and all these things to be sort of proactive in that sense, but When you have segregated and isolated neighborhoods, one after the other, those become places conducive for total, like they're not just isolated and segregated physically, but they become that socially. People are cut off, children. So the the chances of them having these um, full lives that become, you know, lucrative in some sense, Um, educationally or otherwise, become slimmer and slimmer. And that's unfortunate. And it is in those three young men's lives that I was able to sort of flesh that out and call attention to it. Black lives matter um, before death, not after. These gentlemen are alive and they're fighting and doing everything that they can at least from what I understood, from what they articulated to me, they are trying, despite all of the forces, the overlapping social forces that work in so many ways to pull them into space that would continue to compromise their existence. The idea of knowing that they can be anywhere at any given time and easily become a victim, that's unfortunate. And so we ought to think about that prior to someone's death. That is also one other thing to add, Sarah, that is also in that space that also um, presented, again, gendered sort of dynamics. So we can think about that, whether it is um, gender dynamics and what that looks like in everyday existence for black women centered networks with the other mothers and community other mothers, or whether we think about that in terms of social ties and informal neighborhood networks or the everyday details in how life has played out up to the present for Tevin, Kareem, and
0: Ted. You conclude your book with some implications for different groups, including community members, citizens, and even us as researchers. So what would you want us as readers of your book, but also listeners for today to take away
1: So the first thing is,
0: you know, I acquired, again, experiences
1: of my own, but, and I have talked about them through reflexivity and otherwise I've talked about maybe the first researcher to the ground and all those kinds of things only to the degree of explaining you know, those initial calls of action that are, have largely not been accounted for. But more importantly, above all those things that I've said from one extreme to the other, I would like for people to really understand that the work is not done, it's not over. Cameras and folks have come, you know, and rightfully so, because again it is a historic marker, the Ferguson Uprising. And it became a template in many respects for all post Ferguson movements and you know, national and international, and what I really refer to as 21st century Black resistance. So it's important. They needed to come, and those things needed to be dispersed. But I would challenge us to understand that just because, yet again, you don't hear people or see footage of folks running from tear gas and so forth, the work is not done in this region. Direct action continues. And so this, again, is way bigger than the idea of black citizen police conflict. There are so many moving pieces. I could not capture them all, um, even under the you know the framing of disorder, social and physical, to be direct. I there were so many moving pieces that I could not frame them all. The other thing is I did not lend a lot of attention, even though I account for groups, various groups. I do that in a uh, without identifying anybody. In the same way that pseudonyms have been provided to interview participants, likewise, pseudonyms um, were provided to organizations. And I spent much time not even sort of focusing on that because I did not want to give way to politics in a particular way. Who was covered versus not? You know, the, the, the idea that everyone, or as one activist talked to me about a revolutionary task, everybody having a revolutionary task or at least should. So there were many moving parts and many people engaging in what they identified as their revolutionary task. Um, and that didn't always look the same and it didn't always play out the same. And so funding for things didn't always look the same. And so, I wanted to steer clear of that those were not the prominent things. The thing that resonated most is that there are black folks, poor black folks, particularly, that are working in the trenches every day, navigating in compromised ways, trying to advance their neighborhood or their block, trying to Advance one another individually, trying to advance one another, you know, through collective means. And so, this idea um, that Black folks do nothing or Black folks are only interested in a particular kind of advancement or interested in resistance when it comes to a particular kind of incident, that didn't ring true. That didn't ring true. That didn't emerge in my data. So, as I began this project, I would like to again extend respect and homage, and uh, to you know, to a large degree, to the folks on the ground, the people who are invisible, the folks whose work was quote unquote not provocative enough to make national or you know gain wide sweeping attention, but who are every day trying to figure out how to engage or navigate. In a particular way that advances the life of one or two or three or four or many in that sense, um, and in are doing it with little to nothing. Those are the folks that, again, this project I wanted to make especially sure to highlight. Um, those are the folks whose platform was so very important in extending. Um, and so, yeah, um, for that, I think there's a lot to be learned beyond traditional articulation and analysis. There is a lot to be learned in terms of understanding that this is complex, this is widespread, it's pervasive, these issues, and that we ought to think about this or at least uh, account for it in more holistic ways instead of maybe, you know, through a narrow view.
0: Thank you. So today I've been talking with Andrea Boyles about her new book, You Can't Stop the Revolution, Community Disorder and Social Ties in Post-Ferguson America. So what are you working on now, Andrea? Oh. A little bit of everything. Well, I've
1: got some stuff happening.
0: Yes, yes, yes. I have some stuff
1: happening. Let's just say, because I don't want to go too far far into it. Let's just say this. I am working in many respects to continue anal- uh, analysis or at least providing analysis uh, res- with respect to Black disadvantaged. And when I say disadvantaged, economically disadvantaged and otherwise folks in these very racialized spaces. Thank you so much for asking and having me.
0: Yeah. So thanks again for being with us today and sharing your work with us. Thank you too. I really appreciate having this conversation with you.